Amen. This time, if you're in first or third grade, you can go ahead and be dismissed to your class. If you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3. Let's begin with prayer this morning and uh, ask for God's grace <clears throat> and his blessing on our time this morning. God, we come to you with hearts full, reminding us from your word that you are a God who will judge, who will save, whose victory will be made known, whose hope, whose peace, whose salvation has been made available through Christ. All of this, not because of our own merit, but because of what Christ has done. May our hearts be warmed. May our hearts be reminded. May our hearts rejoice this morning in you, the God of our salvation. We ask for grace to have ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning with a question. The question is this. <clears throat> if the God of creation is all-powerful and all-good, then why are things the way they are? If the God of all creation is all-powerful and all-good, then why are things the way they are? Life, by its very nature, is turbulent and disorderly. It constantly defies our attempts to control it. We're challenged by this reality on virtually a daily basis. Physically, we're clearly not in charge. Right? And we're foolish to believe that anything other than that <clears throat> is the truth. Emotionally, we're often very quickly overwhelmed and find that things that we thought we had in control are actually completely blown up in our faces, and we find ourselves in difficulty, often in sadness, depression, chaos. But not just physically and emotionally, but spiritually, by our very nature without God, left to ourselves, we're lost, we're confused, we're like those who are always seeking to know and understand, and yet never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. In all of these circumstances and challenges in life, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, are no doubt represented here this morning in our congregation. A group of people that represent a whole variety of perspective on life itself, on who God is or who God is not, on what the Bible is and what the Bible is not. Perhaps there are even some of those who might even share these thoughts that if our world is chaotic, random, and devoid of meaning, then while we may be disappointed by these terrible, horrible events in life, we should just simply take them in stride. The old que sera, sera mentality. Whatever happens, happens. Because after all, what do we expect? There's no one in charge, there's no one responsible, no one's made anything, no one's appointed anything, it's just all unfolding before us. 
Unfortunately, some have this perspective of life and of God, frankly, if there is a God in their minds. And yet, for the believer, the one who places the center of their trust in the one true God, the God of the Bible, my friends, we still are not exempt because we also face the challenges that challenge our perspective on life, on God, on Scripture. We also have challenges that come with affirming that God is good and all-powerful. The challenge is this. We believe God is good and sovereign, yet we are constantly faced with disappointment, disease, death, chaos, heartache, violence, and injustice. And therefore, people, people of Christian faith or not, beg the question, the question that we began with, if the God of creation is all-powerful and all-good, then why are things the way they are? Why? My friends, these questions are not unusual. Would you agree with that? These, These are questions that are frequent in our lives. They're quite routine, actually. In fact, these are the kind of questions that we often find in the Scriptures. And here in this very short prophecy of Habakkuk, we actually find two of these very same questions. If you've not been able to be with us uh, for the past couple Sunday evenings, we began by studying the first chapter and the second chapter of this short prophecy of Habakkuk. And here in this book, written about six to 700 years before Christ, it begins with Habakkuk complaining with rampant injustice, violence, and conflict amongst, God peop- amongst God's people that is all around him. In other words, the children of Israel, frankly, are off the rails, if you would. They're completely beyond what God had ordained for them and what God had planned for them. There's a complete disregard for the law. The wicked seem to be winning out over those who are seeking to do right. And nothing was being done about it. Or at least that's what Habakkuk was seeing. The dilemma that Habakkuk finds himself in is directly connected to what? It's directly connected to his belief about God. Because as he sees the Israelites and what they're doing, and he knows who God is, a sovereign holy God who demands righteousness from his people, Habakkuk has a twofold concern. First of all, he says, God, here's my first concern it's your timing. How long is this going to go on? How long, God? And his second concern is God's apparent tolerance of evil and injustice. He says, not only how long is this going to last, but why? Why do you tolerate this? And perhaps, my friends, you might even say this yourself. You might say there are very, these are very relevant questions for our day as well. And perhaps you might have even voiced these recently in your own life. So we find Habakkuk here asking God, complaining, lamenting to God, saying, why and how long, why do you tolerate? Now the answer that God provides for Habakkuk begins in in chapter 1, verse 5. But the answer God presents is actually even a bigger problem in the mind of Habakkuk. 
The bigger problem is this, because what God says in response to his complaint is that he would raise up an evil nation, Babylon, who would punish his children, Israel. So God's people have been doing bad things. And God has determined that he will raise up a nation who does really bad things to take care of a nation who does quite bad things. Now Habakkuk has a double problem. Not only what he sees in front of his eyes, but second, the problem of his initial question, but then also the problem of God's answer. So God replies once again to Habakkuk in chapter 2, and he says, well, actually, actually, Habakkuk, I will deliver justice. Don't worry. I've got it under control. I promise you can count on it. It will come, he says, just be willing to wait for it. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 14, he says this, God promises that the whole earth will experience the very glory of God. It will be filled with His glory as the waters cover the sea. Everyone will know what God has done. And God reassures Habakkuk that He, God, Yahweh, is truly sitting on the throne. Verse 20 in chapter 2, he says He's not lost control. The whole earth should keep silent and watch. Essentially, God is saying, Habakkuk, hang on. Don't worry. Habakkuk, I've got this. Wait patiently. Which brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3, which begins with perhaps the best possible response one could have after having an an interchange with God himself, with seeing who God is as compared to the problems and difficulties that he has in his life and his response is this. So first of all, I want you to see that the prophet responds. The prophet responds. Look, Look, if you would, at verse 2 and verse 3 where you see his initial reaction. He says, O Lord... I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then we can even add to the same response in verse 16, where his response is actually more physical in nature. It takes a physical toll on him. It says this, excuse me, I hear and my body trembles. My lip quiver, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And my friends, what we begin to see here is this, that the complaints that began in chapter 1 with how long and why God are now replaced with awe and wonder. We can just imagine perhaps the posture that Habakkuk takes as he witnesses this response from God at this awesome display of God's power, look back at verse 4 in chapter 3. It says, His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there, was, and there His veiled, excuse me, and there He veiled His power. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be part of an event where something of significant takes, significance takes place. Um, perhaps something that grabs your attention or even something that t- took your breath away. All right? There have been multiple occasions in my life where this has taken place. One that immediately comes to my mind is standing up in front of a church 
with a whole audience looking at me and me looking back and doors fling open and this beautiful woman that I love walks to the front and I lose my breath. I, my heart begins to come out of my chest and I stand in awe and wonder and I, I almost audibly gasp, begin to weep and go, I don't deserve this, right? This, this, is, not, this is not a good match, right? She's so much better. Anyway, you get the point. So... You've had moments like this, right, where you stand in awe and you just go, wow. A couple months ago, in God's sovereign plan, he brought our family up here over the 4th of July weekend to have the opportunity to candidate to to come on as an associate pastor here at this church. And on our drive home on Monday, after about 12 hours with three kids who were just delighted to be stuck in a car, we, we get about 30 minutes away from our home in our little town of Brevard, North Carolina, where on a yearly basis they have this wonderful fireworks display that we actually had never been able to see because of our, our, our role at our, our former, um, uh, the camp that we lived at. And we, we begin to pull into our city and from a distance we see fireworks going off. And even though we had spent 12 almost 13 hours in a car, we were motivated to stop, pull over into an empty McDonald's parking lot, and watch at 9.45 at night a display of fireworks. From the back seat, you would hear occasionally, whoa, that's a big one. It's blue. It's green. That's my favorite color, right? There was an awe and wonder, and perhaps you've been at events like this where you come to your feet with the the scene that's unfolding in front of your eyes. You, You might even say things like, isn't it amazing that a person can do something like this? As you stand to your feet, vigorously clapping. And my friends, this is the picture we get here with Habakkuk. God, in his majesty and power, brings Habakkuk to his feet, standing in awe of what he's seeing. But then in verse 16, it's the same majesty and power that does what? Causes him to fall to his knees. Crumpled to the ground. Do you see what it says there? Heart pounding, lips quivering, feet giving out beneath him. And my friends, what we see here is in complete contrast to the handmade gods that closed out chapter 2 and verse 18. Look what it said there in verse 18 in chapter 2. What profit is an idol? When, it, when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. My friends, idolatry at its core is just simply foolish. It's foolish. Because when the rubber meets the road, when life becomes so messy and painful, when tragedy hits, when sickness erupts in a peaceful life, when you stand before the casket of a body with a body of a loved one in it, to whom do you go? To a God of your own creation? To a futile thing that has no life? To an image or relic that might bring you some luck or some comfort? No, my friends, no. You see, God, the God of the Bible, 
is a God whose sovereign display of power and majesty causes people to rise in awe in His mighty deeds and causes men and women to put their hands over their mouth with audible gasps, brings them to their feet in awe and wonder, and lowers them to their knees in adoration and praise. Only the one true God is worthy of this response. The response that we see in the life of Habakkuk. But what's happening here, actually? What's happening in Habakkuk's life? Well, verse 2 gives us a very clear indication that Habakkuk has come into contact with Yahweh and has an expanded understanding of Yahweh in in his actions. What Habakkuk is doing here is that every display, at every display of God's power, every revealing of God's character, for the prophet, for Habakkuk, this becomes a growth moment. At each step of this prophecy as it unfolds, another piece of the puzzle is made available, and Habakkuk is slowly putting this whole puzzle together. Piece by piece, he's seeing a clear picture of who? God. A picture forming right before his very eyes. If you will, he's developing a personal theology. His knowledge of God is growing, and as he goes along, pieces begin to fit together, forming this majestic picture. And he realizes this. This is why God is doing this. Oh, here's that piece. Okay, this is who God is. I asked him why, and he answered this way. I asked him how long, and he responded this way. My friends, Habakkuk's challenging dialogue with God has given him a deeper knowledge and understanding of the ways of God. He has come through this experience having changed, been changed by his encounter with God. Habakkuk has matured in his faith What he has learned about God has left him in awe and his his response is a good response. Look look how that response closes out in verse 16. He says, I will quietly wait. I will wait, excuse me, I will wait patiently, he says. I will continue to pray fervently. What's that prayer? It's a very clear prayer. Notice in verse 2, he says, in the midst of these years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. This is Habakkuk's prayer. He cries out to God that in the midst of wickedness and impending judgment, this is his prayer. God, in your coming wrath, don't forget mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. A prayer for mercy that if, if you fast forward 700 years would be answered at the foot of the cross where Christ, the very Son of God, would hang and declare it is finished. What is finished? The work of redemption. Where Christ took in Himself all of God's righteous wrath against sin and simultaneously displays in Himself All of God's mercy that is provided for the sinner. Just wrath poured on to Christ, and yet the mercy of God being on full display. 
My friends, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, perhaps some of these terms don't make much sense to you. Perhaps you have questions regarding what we're even talking about, what conclusions we're arriving to. And, and it would be our joy to show you from the Scriptures even today what it is to experience this mercy given by God to sinners such as us. We've seen how the prophet responded to God, but second, I want you to see the prophet reviews. Number two, the prophet reviews. Verses 3 through verse 15 provide us with a magnificent and frightening picture of God's mighty acts in Israel's history. A display of power not only over nature, but also over all nations that his people would come in contact with. And frankly, if we had more time, we would notice in detail in these verses the recounting of how God brought his people out from bondage and captivity, freed them from the desolation of the desert life, rescued them from utter devastation. How in these verses, both nature and the nations around them were no match for the power of God. Now, if you're anything like me, when, when perhaps when you stand in front of a bookcase, or when you go to Barnes and Noble, <clears throat> or someone hands you a book and says, this is a good book, you should read it. Perhaps you're like me when you read something, I'm always looking for a sentence or a paragraph that summarizes the whole matter so I can read it, have a good understanding of it, and kind of move on. Okay? Or, or maybe you, you even have that mentality of judging a book by its cover. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I do it. Okay? It's got a nice cover. I'm like, okay, maybe. All right? So, all authors out there, put a nice cover on your book. Okay? <clears throat> um, so, so, what I'm doing is I'm always looking for that one phrase that gives me an idea of what's going on here. And I believe we find that summary phrase, that summary verse in verse 13. Look down at verse 13. It says this, You... God, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. So you might ask, okay, what are verses 3 through verse 15 all about? What is it? Why does Habakkuk take from verse 3 to verse 15 to say what he's trying to say? What is he saying? Well, this is what he's saying. In each of the scenes described in this section, verses 3 through verse 15, what is happening is this, that God was coming out to deliver his people to save his anointed ones, to save them from utter destruction, from utter annihilation. And what we see throughout the story of Scripture, the story in the Bible, is the story of God's promise to Abraham to make of him a nation that will be so great that no one would count it. It would be innumerable. And to a nation, God adds believing Gentiles along with believing Jews and makes a people for himself. But in order to achieve that ultimate goal, that ultimate objective, God, throughout all of history, protects and preserves this plan, his anointed ones. So when you come in contact with the Old Testament and you read it and you look at the Exodus, you say, what is happening when Moses said, 
Pharaoh, let my people go. And they come out of Egypt and they walk in this sea standing, both this giant wall of water on both sides. The answer is what? It's found here in verse 13. God was coming out to deliver his people. What's happening in the conversion of Ruth? The Moabitess girl, when in the encounter with her mother-in-law, she pledges allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's happening? God was preserving his anointed ones. What is happening when David steps out on the battlefield before Goliath and goes out before all of the, the Philistines and defeats the enemy of God? What's happening is this. God is coming out to deliver his anointed ones. And all of this saving, all of this deliverance, all of this rescuing culminates where? Again, we find it at the foot of the cross. The glorious fulfillment of this section, verses 3 through verse 15, find their fulfillment in the death and the resurrection of Christ hundreds of years later. The prophet reviews here in this short section the mighty deeds of Yahweh, and he finds God to be faithfully saving his people, faithfully delivering them out of bondage. God's mission to preserve a people for himself will not be thwarted. And the prophet now realizes this, and he acknowledges it. And this is the review of God's mighty acts. And his review is complete. So we've seen how the prophet responds. We've seen how the prophet reviewed the acts of God coming out to save his people. And then finally, I want you to see the prophet rejoices. The prophet rejoices. Habakkuk begins this book with very serious questions. Why and how long? But he brings this, this short prophecy to, to an astonishing end. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. In other words, Habakkuk gains a fresh perspective on life as he interacts with God and comes to grip with the truths he has discovered about Yahweh. He has a fresh perspective. But contrast this with the dire picture that he paints for us, starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, No grapes on the vines, all crops fail, fields produce no food, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. Well, what is that? Right? Well, that's the absolute destruction of society. That's everything gone to pot. That's everything wrecked, ruined, destroyed. But let's put it in today's context. Here's what he's really saying. He's saying, though the stock market collapses, though my property loses 75% of its value, though prices for gasoline go up 8 10 $15 a gallon, 
that we have food shortages and we have to stand in line at Walmart so we can have rations for food, still, I will rejoice in the Lord, he says. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. He comes to the conclusion that the sovereign Lord is his strength. You see, he doesn't end up rejoicing because circumstances are fixed. In fact, there's no indication here that the circumstances are being fixed. The circumstances actually will probably get worse before they get better. The reality is the prophet is acknowledging this before God while still realizing, I probably will have to to die. These people will come sweeping in and utterly destroy God's people. But the prophecy, my friends, that opened with doubts and problems ends with delight and praise. And I want to remind you again, notice carefully that the joyful note that ends this this interchange with God is not caused by happy circumstances. It's not motivated by happy circumstances. And until you and I are prepared to wrap our hearts and our minds around this truth, All we do is we set ourselves up for more pain. Because as we continue to place more value in the altering of our circumstances, as opposed to rejoicing in the Lord, our strength, yeah, it's going to feel very painful. It's going to feel very hopeless. And if we deceive ourselves to think that we can simply appeal to God and he will remove all and fix all of our circumstances, we're deceived, greatly deceived. It's like saying this, I've got a terrible problem. Now I'm going to go to God about it. And wow, I don't have any more problems. So now let's, let's go have a picnic. Right? I will rejoice. We will rejoice. Now you can see what it's like to rejoice. I've got no more problems. God took them all away. Well, my friends, if that's what you're saying, you're flat out not telling the truth. Yes, eventually the picnic, the picnic is in heaven. There's no doubt about that. All will be made right. All all will be made well. That will be unhindered joy. There will be praise and wonder forevermore. Yes, that time is coming. But right now, right now, all we see, all we're surrounded by, is brokenness. Fightings outside of us, Fears within us, doubts, disappointments, cancer, shattered relationships, deaths. And that's not even the half of it. No, no, we cannot honestly say that changed circumstances brings joy. Because frankly, they don't. 
they don't. Okay, what now then? Right, Pastor Sean, you're like you're up, you're up there being a Debbie Downer. Like, let's. You said the prophet rejoices. So, what happened to that? How do, how do we get to the point where we can say, "I will rejoice"? That's the thousand dollar question here. The answer is right here. He he doesn't say, "I will rejoice." He says, "I will rejoice." In the Lord. I will be joyful, notice, in whom? The God of my salvation. Not some wooden carved object I place somewhere in my house. No, I'm coming to the sovereign Lord who made himself known to me in the scriptures. Who revealed himself in mighty acts throughout history. This is what Habakkuk is saying. And this is far more, my friends, than a mentality of, I'm going to tough it out, right? I'm, I'm going to hang in there until I can't bear it anymore. No. Habakkuk would be joyful in the God of his salvation. There was absolute confidence, not just to grin and bear it. Because at times, at times we cry out, Sovereign Lord, I've lost my job. Sovereign Lord, I have cancer. Sovereign Lord, my family is broken. Sovereign Lord, my friend is dying. Sovereign Lord, this life hurts. But my friends, this is the Christian life. Circumstances often do not change But in the midst of these dangers, toils, snares, we cry out to the Sovereign Lord. You've got a, a sure and steady place to go to. Because when it all hits the fan and you feel like there's nowhere else to run to, the answer is not in transformed circumstances, but the answer is where? In the revelation of God Himself in His Word. You and I have nothing else to hold on to except what God has promised. Everything else falls through our fingers like water. The Word, my friends, is our promised comfort. The Sovereign Lord is your strength. You see, right now, you and I, we have loved ones in this congregation, people sitting in pews across from you that are facing very real, very horrible battles with illnesses, loss, death, and the list goes on. But let me remind you this morning, your sovereign Lord, even in the midst of all that pain, Even in the face of death, he's able to guarantee his children that he's coming out onto the battlefield to save you for himself. To rescue you from all forms of calamity and destruction. And I love this. And having rescued you, 
He will not let you go. As the hymn writer says, in a love which cannot cease, I am his and he's mine. I wish we had time to go to Romans 8 and unpack the majestic chapter, the magnificent chapter that begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's here in this chapter that Paul fills in for us a lot of the gaps that often are in our hearts and our minds, the doubts that we carry with us, with glorious truths about God and his mission to save us. Because it's here in this chapter of of Romans chapter 8 that we see this phrase, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, he doesn't only say who can be against us. Because the answer to that is, well, a lot of people and a lot of things. A lot. On a daily basis, a lot. But Paul says, get get some perspective here. Just like like Habakkuk had had a new, fresh perspective, Paul says, get some perspective. If the sovereign Lord of the universe is for you, has redeemed you, has come out to save you, then literally nothing can alter your future assurance. And this should change how you and I face our world, face our problems today. And then he says a couple of verses after, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? Well, you see, what he means by this is not that people won't come out and accuse us, because frankly, the devil accuses us, our conscience accuses us, people accuse us. But at the cross, the case is closed. There's no higher court that you can appeal to. God has made it so that all who are in Christ, who have been justified and set apart, for them there's no condemnation. So go ahead. Let anybody come and accuse in any way they want. It's not going to stick. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, Paul kind of speculates. He says, well, uh, maybe tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And then Paul says, no, no way. Bring it on. He says, because ultimately, none of this can get to me. None of it. The reality is this. You can be separated from your house. You can be separated from your wife. You can be separated from your kids. You can be separated from your body. But you can't be separated from the love of God for you. Cancer can't get your soul. Trials can't touch your soul. Earthly loss can't touch your soul. Right here in these truths... And the core of these truths is the birthplace of rejoicing. At the center of you and I coming to realize that we stand before God in Christ and nothing can touch us is the cause to rejoice. 
My friends, God has come out to save his people. Now, there there must be something truly remarkable about God and his truth. Truly remarkable about God and his truth that would cause a man, Habakkuk, to see impending doom in his life and still do what? Rejoice. There must be something truly stunning and truly remarkable, spectacular about the word of God and the promise of salvation. If it can produce joy in a message of judgment. We've come a long way since the beginning of this book. We've navigated some pretty hard, difficult complaints. We've come a long way since tough questions and remarkably, Habakkuk's perspective in all of this has changed. And you might be sitting here this morning with trials all around, with swirling questions that keep you up at night, things that seem to have no end. My friends, come to God with your concerns. Come to Him with your questions. Come to Him with your pain. And like the prophet in his response, sit and wait. Wait for God to show show you Himself in His Word. And when you get a glimpse of who God is, may it take root in your heart and renew your trust in the Sovereign Lord. My friends, my prayer for you this morning is this. That your hearts would be overcome with the assurance, with the hope that only comes in knowing Christ. That only comes in seeing God in all of His glory, in all of His power. That you would be overcome by this hope. That you would have a deep, rooted confidence in God that would cause you to rejoice even in the midst of the darkest of times. I want to close this morning by reading you a hymn. A hymn written several hundred years ago by William Cowper that summarizes the interchange between a human being who has pain and who struggles who goes to God with complaints and questions, who sees God and has the appropriate response. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free 
from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. Tomorrow can bring us nothing, but he will bear us through. Who gives the field lily, who gives the lily's clothing will clothe his people too. Beneath the spreading heavens, no creature but is fed. And he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. Though vine nor fig tree, neither, their wanted fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks or herds be there. Yet, God the same abiding. His praise shall tune my voice, for while in Him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Father, we come to you with hearts heavy with trials, with pain, with questions. But we also have seen you for who you are. We know you are the God of salvation, the one who has gone before us in sending his son, your son for us, to deliver us from the bondage of, of sin and death. And in that confidence, we rejoice. While surrounded by pain and death, we are reassured that in mercy, in wrath, you have remembered mercy. You've not left us hopeless.